You're listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBTQ plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Walter and talking about adopting when you've got a history of depression. Hi Walter, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here, thank you. Thank you for volunteering or being dragged onto the podcast, whichever it feels like. So um, I'm really glad that we're going to talk about this because I think it's so relevant to people. And I know that there always used to be a, a sort of myth, I guess, you can't adopt if you've got mental health issues or had mental health issues. Were you aware of that as a as a rumour, as a, um, a belief before you put yourselves forward for adoption? I think I was, perhaps. I think that it was definitely in the back of my mind that it may be a barrier. But when we started looking into adopting, it wasn't something that actually came up when we actually started looking into the process, etc. With our local authority, we didn't really see that as something that was going to be a problem. But then, as I said, in the back of my head, I always did think, perhaps, given that we're looking after we're being given the chance to look after children who already have quite vulnerable issues, that possibly someone who has got mental health issues might actually be um, might actually be difficult and might actually be a barrier, as I said. Um, and I guess what I would say, why I'm happy to do this and keen to do this, is because there's a lot of discussion at the moment around mental health, generally in the press and on you know, on television, etc. But there isn't a great deal of discussion about how mental health can impact on parenting and impact on the, the children who have to live with someone who's got a depression or mental health issues. So I'm quite keen to kind of break that taboo in a way. I think it's so important. And I think you're right that probably in the last decade, I guess it's been so much more visible that people feel able to say, I have mental health issues or I've had mental health issues. But yeah, there's still, I think, a lot more to be done. So going back right to when you applied, did you tell them straight away when you applied to adopt? Was it that where you dump all of the information right at the beginning or did you wait a little while for the right moment? Uh, no, I, I, it came up as a natural part of the assessment, really. Uh, we we went through, as everyone does, we went through the adoption assessment. We had a fantastic social worker. I have to give her credit. She was terrific. And I knew that at some point there was going to be a discussion about health and about health issues, because that's part of what the assessment process is. And I knew that uh, it was important that I didn't I didn't shy away from telling the truth, which was that I have had episodes of quite heavy depression in the past and they were going to get in touch with our doctors and medical people anyway. But I was nervous about it. I won't deny it. I was nervous that that would be the one thing that would would be a, a sort of stumbling block, really, uh, in our process. And uh, a social worker, I won't name her, uh, was incredibly supportive and incredibly understanding about it. But it didn't stop me from thinking, what if this is the thing that is going to be, yeah, that is going to block our application? Yeah, I understand that. It's so hard to think that your thing might be the stumbling block. And 
especially I guess if you have been living with it you, you found ways through can you talk to me a bit about your depression like when that first became an issue in your life and how it was long before you adopted well I think it probably began in my late teenage years my dad died when I was at university so I was probably about 18 or 19 and at the time I didn't realize but looking back I definitely that was definitely my first period of a real a real low and a real depression and not you know inability to sleep being up through the night it really affected my studying and I took a year out from university anyway and 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 it has recurred with triggers, I guess. Um, uh, sometimes it was work triggers. Sometimes it might have been relationship triggers. Sometimes it might just have come on uh, w- without actually realizing it. But it's definitely been uh, it's definitely been there since I was, you know, as I said, in my late teens. And I can go years without it hitting, and then suddenly it will hit, and it's you know, it's it's a it's. I'm trying to be very open and honest about it because actually I think it's important to say that it's not a taboo and that it's not something that you shouldn't talk about and and we'll come on to it I'm sure but you know not something you shouldn't even talk to your children about and uh yeah so yeah I guess here and there it's been a recurring pattern for oh god 40 years now Yes, and I'm, I'm, I agree with you that I think talking about it is immensely important and that openness because it's something that so many people experience, but it is socially taboo. When those episodes hit, what are they like? They are uh, feeling uh, vulnerable, feeling uh, like I, a lack of self-worth, a lack of self-identity, and a feeling that there's no kind of escape from it and yeah just a kind of general low anxiety and really kind of wanting to kind of shy away from the rest of the world yeah (laughs) to a degree and I suppose that's something that you can do to a point when you don't have responsibilities like children you know is that what you would have done pre-children was disappear a little bit hibernate a little bit and how long would that go on for for you yes that would have been uh, and uh, actually there are periods where I didn't even have you know obviously I'm lucky to be um, in a civil partnership with my fabulous partner but uh, there were periods where obviously I was on my own and it would be very very easy it would be very simple to just think I'm just going to shut everything out for a while until I feel like I can cope with it and I actually have a a, a relative um, younger than me who also suffers in the same way and I look at her and I think that's what I used to be like yeah and 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 you kind of have to just try and work your way out of it you know I I, I can look and understand that that it's very easy to get into that um, that sort of black hole uh and obviously there's medication and there's talking therapies and I've been through both of those. But yes, pre pre having pre being a parent, it was very easy to just think 
the only way to deal with this is just to kind of like close everything down, you know, keep the curtains closed. Not that I have curtains. Um, <laughs> and, and, um, and so, as I said, you know, earlier at the beginning, it was definitely in the back of my mind when we applied to adopt that this could be something that, 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 that would be seen to be, well, as I said, you know, a barrier because you've got these kids who are already quite vulnerable and have had very difficult traumatic experiences in their lives. Why would you want someone who sometimes is quite vulnerable to be their parent? Yeah, and I can understand that you would have thought that way, you know, because I think we all think that, don't we, approaching with our vulnerabilities that they won't be welcomed, they will be, yeah, barriers or potentially deal breakers. Did you yourself worry about your ability to cope during periods of depression before you had a child? Truthfully, actually, I didn't, to be honest. And I think maybe there was a sort of slight naivety there. Um, I think the excitement of making the decision, going through the adoption process, there was almost a kind of, well, excitement, actually, is the word that I would use, genuinely, because this is a kind of strange thing to say (laughs) as a gay man. You know, I'd always wanted to be a dad. And actually, when I was younger, um, I had sort of fantasies of what it would be like to have a child and to be a dad and what kind of dad I would be like. And of course, I never thought it was ever going to happen because that was the 1980s, whatever. And, and you know, that, that was a long time ago and we, 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 weren't, we weren't in the situation that we're in now. So I didn't, actually. I didn't until the day came when, when we had the meeting <laughs> at our kitchen table where we started talking about our health issues and I opened up and it, it basically said, look, you know, if you're going to look at my medical records, I have this history of depression. What was really the first time, genuinely, that I thought that it would possibly be an issue? Because up until that point, just just the, well, I, I've said it, you know, the excitement of thinking we could suddenly become parents kind of took over, really. That's really nice. And I, yeah, I understand that desire to have children. And yeah, and that belief that it could be really difficult. You know, it did feel like the choice was gay or parent, gay or parent, but not gay parent. That wasn't the thing. Nobody'd ever heard of that. So I, I understand completely. But it sounds like still at that stage around that kitchen table, your doubt was still whether you would get through the process, whether you'd be allowed to get through the process, not whether you could parent. Yes, no, it absolutely was. And uh, it didn't really become concrete in a way until we had a approval panel and obviously the approval panel is a bit like it's a bit like going on trial <laughs> anyone, anyone who hasn't done it uh-huh. um <laughs> there's a there's a film called 12 angry men which oh, is yeah. <laughs> and the approval panel is a bit like 12 angry men um but not quite so angry and <laughs> uh and obviously one of the people on the approval panel is a health worker and she was the one, I remember going, going around the table and then suddenly got to her and she looked rather stern and she raised the issue of the depression history. And she asked, 
I remember it very vividly, actually. And she asked what I would do if I found myself in that situation again. And I kind of fumbled or stumbled and said, well, I would do what I normally do, which is go and get some kind of help, talk to my doctor, be open about it, seek some kind of support. And yeah, and that was the one moment where I thought, I genuinely thought that had become concrete. You know, that was the one moment where I thought, and I did think that was the point at which I thought, is this going to be the thing that actually stops us from getting what we're trying to do here? And I remember leaving the room with the 12 angry men in it, coming back in and being told that you had been unanimously approved to adopt and I looked over and she had looked really stern when we were doing the thing. And she just gave me the most kind of like happy smile as if she'd had to ask me these really difficult, you know, she'd had to be tough with me and ask these difficult questions, but we'd got through it and she knew that we'd got through it. And yeah, it was a, it was just a lovely moment to think it doesn't, it's not a block to being a parent. And there's, you know what, there are parents, there are th- hundreds of thousands of parents out there with natural birth children who've got mental health issues and they're all struggling and they're all trying to deal with it in their own way. I, I guess it's just, I felt it could be problematic because we are, as gay adoptive parents, we are we are in charge of children who have come through some pretty tough times. Mm. And do they really want their mum or dad to look like they're having pretty tough times? Probably not. I think that's been the received wisdom in the system for a long time, that children who have been through difficult times and who have complicated needs need people who haven't been through difficult times and have very straightforward lives. And I think I really doubt the wisdom of that. I think that children with complicated needs and so on need people who perhaps have navigated complicated needs themselves. I think that's strength and I think that's resilience. But I agree with you that the received wisdom in the system has not always been that way. So you got through the approval panel and then were matched to your child, who I know is now 14. How old was your child when they came to you? Uh, Five. Right. So, okay. So you're a long time into this then. I certainly am, yes. Yes, <laughs> a decade in. And um, when was the first time that depression became or came back or that you went through an episode of depression after your child was with you? Probably within about 18 months, I think. Um, I was uh, I was in the middle of an incredibly stressful work situation. As I said, there are triggers. I mean, I think I, I agree that depression is something that can just come on but obviously there can be things that trigger it and I was in the middle of a very difficult work situation and was finding it extremely difficult to cope and at that stage I guess our son was not that old you know six seven perhaps and therefore it was it seemed important not to make it visible that daddy was struggling mm-hmm. it's obviously we've 
obviously there's dad and daddy. And actually that was, that was, that was tough. I have to say, because as we said earlier, you know, in the past, it was easy for me to kind of just shut things down or to kind of retreat a bit, but you can't do that when you've got bedtime and story time and bath time <laughs> and yeah. meal time. Um, so there was a, there was there, there was quite a lot of putting on a front, and then because obviously of his age, he could go to bed early-ish and I didn't have to worry about it so much. It, it, it's it's much more difficult as the years go on to, well, to be honest, to hide when one is in that kind of state or one is feeling like that. Um, yeah, the energy required to cover it is immense. You know, masking is exhausting. And so if you are trying to outwardly show one thing while inwardly feeling something very different, you're burning through energy to be able to make that presentation of yourself. No, the energy was immense. I agree. That's a really uh, astute observation. And, 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 you know, by that stage, you know, if he was going to bed at 7.30, I was probably going to bed at nine o'clock because I was just completely burnt out and exhausted from the yeah. day. But what I would say, and again, maybe this is a bit naive, but what I would say is that having the delight of having this young person in your life which gives you a kind of boost actually is quite a good antidepressant in itself yeah I was wondering that as you were talking and I thought it almost might be a bit of a naive question perhaps or a bit of a bit of an annoying question I suppose if I'm honest to say did it help in some ways too um, you know, you said, I guess, that your instinctive response to periods of depression was to pull away from things, to hide away from things. And, you know, you're right. If if the child needs feeding, the child needs feeding. And really, you know, I realised that for some people, they would reach crisis to a point where they weren't able to do that. But if you are able, you kind of have to do it. You know, there aren't there isn't Mary Poppins to swoop in and help you out for a few weeks for many, many people. You know, some people have that in their extended family or friends and things, but lots of people don't. And that thing of you kind of got to keep finding it in you. So it's interesting that you found that requirement to find that in you perhaps moved you a little bit in that experience. Oh, I think that's true. You know, we have a photo. Um, I might get a bit emotional here, sorry. That's okay. We have a photo, um, uh, so 20, 2017, and I'd, I'd had a really difficult time, and I was really, really struggling. And um, our son was going to music classes, and they were um, learning how to play Seven Nation Army by White Stripes. And uh, so on Saturday evening, we were watching White Stripes videos on YouTube, on the television. And um, Kenny has a ukulele that was actually one of the things that came with him when he first came to live with us. And so he was being the guitar and I was being the drummer and we <laughs> had like some cushions and some boxes and we were just playing along to these White Stripes videos. And my partner took a photo of us and it is my favourite photo of the two of us ever because I just look so happy in it. <laughs> 
That's so nice. And so, yes, I think, I think what I would say, if anyone's listening to this, if this is any use to anyone who's thinking about adopting or is adopting and is going through, you know, has gone through mental health issues, that actually parenting can be difficult, obviously, but it can be a real sort of panacea. It can really, really make a difference to your outlook. And that that, that moment was just, yeah, it was just, I just suddenly realised, you know what, you're struggling, mate, but look at what's going on around you. And, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's the best life you can have. That's a really lovely thing to hear. That's really, really nice. And so it sounds like you were able to continue parenting through the episodes of depression as they came up. Was that ever not the case? Actually, no, I don't think it was. You know, as I said to slightly stern health worker who turned out to be smiley <laughs> um, at our approval panel, you know, if that if that crops up, I will get support. You know, I'll go to my GP or I'll, you know, do some talking therapy or whatever it may be. So I don't, no, no, I don't think it did. The one thing that, that, that did become significant in a way is that as our son got older and was able to understand the idea that, you know, sometimes daddy's not at his best or is quite sad or might be a bit grumpy, was to be age-appropriate honest with him mm-hmm. and to not hide it. And I think that was important, really. It was, I think it was important for me, maybe more than for him, but I think it was important. And and he does, you know, he does recognize. Obviously, he's now a teenager, so he does recognize it and he does understand it. And you know, we've we've talked about it a lot, actually. And of course, you know, the world has changed so much. You know, you know, I go to his school, and there's banners and posters about taking care of your mental health everywhere that there never were when I went to school in the 1980s. No. So it's not a taboo. And I don't think it should be a taboo. Um, and I guess the reason I'm doing this is because if anyone who wants to adopt and is worried about it thinks that it could be, as we discussed, a barrier, then I would say, no, it's not. And it shouldn't be. I agree with you completely. And I think it's really important that people don't rule themselves out if they've got so much to bring, but just some challenges in their lives. Absolutely that. When you say that you were age appropriate, honest with your son, what sort of age did that start and what did that look like? Oh, um, oh, that's a very good question. <laughs> I would say <laughs> it's one that I hadn't really prepared for. Um, I would say probably... Certainly, definitely during primary school years, maybe around 10, 11. And I think also prompted by the fact that, you know, as as, as we all do as parents, uh, you know, through New Family Social, as parents with, you know, children who've experienced quite a lot of difficulties in their lives beforehand, there's a way of sort of, I don't know how to describe this, but there's a way of sharing those difficulties to a degree. You know, that there's a kind of empathy on both sides. 
and when when my son was struggling uh because his circumstances are complicated and still are complicated but that's a, a, a not for this podcast when i was there for him at a certain point he sort of was there for me and i was able to say look you know the reason why i've not been i've been grumpy or i've not been at my best or we haven't done as much as we normally do is because you know i have you know i struggle sometimes with with um with my mental health i don't know I, I, i'm hesitant to say that it sort of actually brought us together but i do think that it's always been really important to me to say you can talk to me about anything yeah you can talk to you know whatever is going on in your head you can talk to me about anything and therefore as his daddy as i am um i think it's only fair to say that you know within reason <laughs> i can talk to him about anything and gently and slowly uh he became aware of it and uh i think it's important i think it's important that they know that you know their parents also have got vulnerabilities I agree with you so much. I'm nearly nodding my own head off as you're talking. Uh, so, yeah, I agree with you so much. I think that so many people of, of my sort of age, which I'm still saying is mid-40s, I'm clinging on to mid-40s with my fingernails <laughs> as it's dragging me through 47. I don't know how long I can keep saying mid-40s. But in my mid-40s, people of my age who've been to therapy and stuff, it feels like their journey has often started with, what on earth is wrong with me? Why, why am I not? coping like everyone else's why am I not okay and I do feel that younger generations who are perhaps being more open about experience of mental health um, issues ups downs but also neurodivergence and different ways of processing and all of those kinds of things being much much more open about that I hope that their journey might start with some understanding that they aren't broken or they aren't fundamentally flawed they're just not okay for a while or need some support for a while or wired in a certain way which might be different to other people's wiring but that it's all okay and I agree with that modeling of openness with with kids who might face those challenges and so uh, with my own child I've said things like oh I don't know as an example it it seems like you're finding this change that's going on in our lives very difficult and that can be common for people like you who were adopted to find change very difficult. So if you find that, that's a really normal response given your experiences. Because what I don't want is that he goes through, let's say, his early 20s going, God, why am I not like everyone else? Why am I getting stressed? Why am I so anxious about this? And it's like, well, there's a language for you. This might be normal for you because of what's happened. And I have no idea with all of my parenting whether it's right, wrong, good, bad or indifferent. Uh, probably all of those. But um, but I I feel like our generation and older, I guess, knows about what it's like to sit there thinking, why am I different to everybody? What's wrong with me? What's this feeling I've got? And even just the coming out journey is that. Why am I different? Why am I not normal like everybody else? And I think that once children, young people and younger adults have a vocabulary, a vocabulary around difference and 
experiences that would otherwise be isolating takes out that whole whole first stage of I'm broken I'm weird I'm different I'm I'm not like the others to find out actually if you look behind the door loads of people loads of people have these experiences oh no I think that's absolutely true and I think that what I would say is that in relation to kind of just the bigger picture of what we're talking about that that idea that you have to have some kind of like super parenting strength yeah. because you've gone down, you know, you've gone down this crazy adoption route, particularly the crazy adoption route of being, you know, lesbian or gay or trans or whichever, that somehow that's expected of you, that there's some kind of like super parent. Mm-hmm. And it's just not, it's just, it's just not the case, you know, it's just not the case. (laughs) The only thing that makes it an issue is the worry that it will be your barrier to becoming a parent. And, and, and I think, you know, we've got to accept that it's not, I mean, why should it be? I agree so much. I just think that, yeah, it's that thing of we've got to get through this process of proving ourselves as suitable enough which I think is getting more realistic about the entirety of human beings. You know, I don't think, I think that bar is moving from you have to be perfect to you have to be pretty damn good, but maybe not perfect. And I'm putting huge speech marks around all of that. Well, the psychologist um, uh, Donna Winnicott had this theory, which is called good enough parenting, (laughs) which is basically there's no such thing as perfect. You just have to be good enough. 100% that and I think also I've learned that you can say to your child maybe not in these words but I properly cocked that up and I'm really sorry you know like when I got mad at you yesterday for that thing I know I got too mad I'm really sorry I should have been a lot calmer I should have dealt with it really differently or I know I snapped or I know this that and the other and and just be kind of open about about those flaws and about making mistakes when we had some post-adoption support we've had various bits through the years but um a couple of times we met really good, really human people. And somebody said to us, you're definitely going to mess up. So we're going to talk about all the times that you messed up. So don't worry about that. Because that's, I know that's already happened. Like, that's normal. <laughs> but actually, it's how you respond to that that is the predictor of how well your child will do. So it wasn't that you have to be perfect or therapeutic in every living moment. Because my God, therapeutic parenting is easy for seven minutes. And then, you know, the other 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, it's hard. And they were really nice about, you will definitely mess it up. We can learn from that, but you'll definitely mess it up again. And it's how you repair it that is actually the predictor. And that was so such a relief to know that actually, if you can be a bit honest and say, this happened, or I was dealing with this challenge or whatever. Um, it's funny, my partner just uh, said this morning, that our son said to her last night, was I cross with him? Which I wasn't at all. So obviously there's something in how I was behaving yesterday. And I'm not even sure what it was. I had just watched Oppenheimer. So maybe I was thinking about, you know, nuclear war or something. I don't know. Um, But his perception going to bed was that I was cross with him. And he said, she mustn't tell me that. And so now she obviously has, but I now need to go and just check in with him and find out what it was in me that he read and what I'd communicated. Now, in an ideal world, I would never have given him that impression. I'm really not sure what I did to do that. But in terms of repairing it, what I'm going to go and do is go and chat to him about it and ask him what it was that he saw in how I was and 
and so on and reassure him that if there was a problem I would say it in words and if I haven't said it in words it means I'm not cross with him or not anything you know so go and try and repair that one but well, well I could be generalizing here but I do think that as adoptive parents we are much more inclined to do that actually I think because we're aware of all of the vulnerabilities that go on in the background psychologically or whichever way and therefore you know we're much more attuned to thinking you know we 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 need to talk and we need to fix this you know I mean I grew up in the 1980s I I didn't have a great relationship with my dad um, which may be part of why I wanted to become a parent you know we'd never have had those conversations and therefore you know the fact that we are able to try and be open and um, empathize in that way is really significant. And I think that we do, again, I'm generalizing, but we do as adoptive parents overcompensate on that front because one feels the need to. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I think it's it's one of our superpowers, isn't it? As being LGBTQ people is we've done a lot of self-examination. We've been on a journey. Just being LGBTQ alone is a journey. And we have to, within that, find ourselves, find our words, find our pride in ourselves, find our dignity when the world sometimes has wanted to take those things away. And I think that there's just huge learning in that that's so applicable to parenting. You know, it's... They're proud of us all, all the stuff that we've come through and all the things that we can then bring to children who really need people who can articulate difference and articulate struggle and things. And from what you're saying about what you've managed to do with your child is be very honest about what you struggle with and how that works for you. And honestly, that's surely got to be a good thing because it gives them just a rich emotional life, a life that is reflective of what things are actually like. It's not Disney emotional life. It's real emotional life. It's hard sometimes. And and I think that articulating that is fantastic. So you mentioned a couple of times through this that if people are thinking about coming forward who've got current or history of mental health issues, that they should do, they shouldn't be put off. Is there any other advice that you want to give either about parenting and adopting with mental health issues or just more generally about parenting and adopting i'm not sure really uh you know the first thing i would say is don't let it hold you back because it didn't for us and here we are nearly 10 years down the line and we're a pretty stable family as much as any kind of like slightly crazy gay family can be (laughs) um we're pretty stable that should be our strap line Pretty stable parenting by the LGBTQ community. On the website, I will do. I'm going to change the logo. (laughs) But no, I don't think so. I just think you know, this is terrible cliche, isn't it? Honesty is the best policy, and it really is. I mean, the one thing I would 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 like to say, if I may, is that uh, we did a charity fundraising for Samaritans. Uh, during lockdown, we raised uh, almost a thousand pounds. And that was a point at which, you know, I really sat down and explained, look, you know, this is what depression is. Here's this charity that helps people who are struggling. I'm going to be honest. I've called these people before in the past and they've been really helpful to me. 
and as we said earlier, you know, it's age appropriate. But I, yeah, my, I guess my final message would be to say, you know, when you go on the websites and you go on the local authorities and the adoption agencies, etc., and they say, you know, being a single parent is no barrier to adopting. You know, having a disability is no barrier to adopting. Uh, I would like it to be known that having a history of mental health issues ain't a barrier to adopting either. I think that's brilliant. And um, when we do the Could You Adopt or Foster webinars that we do once a month to um, to newbies, you know, who are thinking about it, we always have that on the list of, you know, you can and yeah. It's it's really normal to have some history of mental health problems. So yeah, absolutely. And you'd be welcome to come and speak at one of those while I'm dragging you into things. I would be more than happy. I've got plenty of time. I'd be more than happy to come and speak. <laughs> I'd love that. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. It's really, really nice to talk to you. And I think it's really important subject matter. So thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. I'd like to thank my guest today, Walter. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter at LGBT Adopt Foster and on Facebook search New Family Social, all one word. Visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins. We'll be back next week with more guests and more tea.